clubhouse. You said you want to get mad. He's a bad, scary man, Wayne. Oh, he's not. You are. You lie and you disappear and you make Dad sad. You suck. I just want a regular mom with a regular home. This is Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu Podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Anna Hoagie. It's time to load up the race. I love that scene. I love watching him just pop up and, and Bing sensing it was so good. Uh, Anna, tonight we're talking about episode four of season two of Nosferatu, The Lake House. Ooh, The Lake House was written by Megan Mostyn Brown and directed by Craig McNeil, who also directed last week's episode. Well, Craig was a very fresh name for me, so I definitely recognized him, but Megan's name sounds familiar. Has she written for Nosferatu before? Yes, she has. This is her third episode that she's written for the show. Um, she wrote Parnassus and The House of Sleep back in season one. Those Ooh. were both really mythology-heavy episodes, so it's really cool to see her digging even deeper into these characters she obviously knows so well in the lake house. Both of those episodes stay with me. House of Sleep is, is the one with uh, Vic tied up in Bing's basement. That was so disturbing, that whole scene. And obviously Parnassus. I, I mean, I fucking love that place. I wish I could live there. So not, not that I have a dark soul that I'm very well aware of, but I think I could definitely hang with the guys and gals that, that uh, chill in Parnassus. So. I, I'm kind of into it too, man. You know, it's a cool looking place. So I get it. Glad to have Megan back. It's always good. When you, when you have someone who knows the characters, who knows the show, and writing two episodes of a 10-episode season and, and two big, important episodes uh, that really laid a lot of groundwork for the show back in season one, I think it just builds, like, some street cred. For, for people who follow those kinds of things, who look up who writes the episodes, I think it is really reassuring when you see a name and then you can see what other episodes they've worked on before. Oh, definitely. I'm such a nerd for that kind of thing, um, especially when I'm watching the episode and a line pops up. I'll remember that writer. I'll go and check out other stuff that they've done. I mean, that's, you know, I follow the storytellers. I mean, I think you have to. And if you do that long enough and you follow the threads of the shows that you like, and if there is a commonality among the shows that you like, you'll be shocked at how often you see names pop up across shows, maybe less so with writers, because writers tend to be you know, pretty loyal to their shows. They tend to be staff writers who become writers of their own in their own right, you know, working in the writer's room and then getting their own episode. But you'll definitely notice among directors, if you notice shows across the shows that you watch that have a similar feel, and then you go look at the director, you'll notice a lot of times it's the same director directing those different episodes because they have their own style of how they like to tell a story. And if the show you're watching, they're probably going to tell the story in an interesting way that you like because you're used to it because you've seen the style before on this other show. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's neat because you, you get to see sort of these these people get sought out for doing, you know, certain episodes in a certain way. And, yeah, like you're saying, you, you start to notice their style and you start to see them across different genres, um, you know, sort of across the board. And you, you get familiar with who's doing this art. To your point, and anyone who likes TV, anyone who spends a lot of time 
uh, watching TV, I definitely suggest you you pay attention to the directors of your favorite shows. And I'll tell you why. I was a big West Wing fan. I was a big wing nut. Before my writing days, before I began writing recaps for shows, that would come along with Lost. And the West Wing was the first show that I ever watched where I became aware of the creatives behind the camera. Obviously, Aaron Sorkin was kind of impossible to miss on on West Wing, but it was really the directors who I eventually began to get excited when I would see their names come up in episodes. They were always home runs for me. If I saw, it was Tommy Schlamy, it was Chris Misiano, it was Alex Graves. If I saw any of those three names pop up uh, after, you know, the... And then you would go into like, you know, you'd have the cold open, then you'd have the credits, and then you'd have the directed by. I got so excited when I saw their names because they knew the show. They represented... And they directed the best episodes that defined what the show was to me. And, and to this day, if I see Chris Misiano and or Alex Graves pop up in a show somewhere and, and it happens, I get excited for that episode of television and I'm watching because I'm trained from my West Wing days to know I like how they direct shows. I like how they tell the story that someone wrote. So it's just just as a fan tip, as a pro tip. Start paying attention to who writes the shows that you like and who directs the shows that you like. Amen to that. But we're not here to talk about The West Wing, Anna, though I definitely could do a podcast about that if you ever wanted to. I, I'm obsessed with that show. I watch it constantly. But we're here to talk about Nosferatu. And I want to tell all you people listening that you should definitely stick around tonight because after we're done breaking down tonight's episode four, we have a fantastic interview with Tabitha Hutter herself, Ashley Romans. What do you think about that, Anna? Yay! I'm really excited because this is the perfect episode to have Miss Ashley Romans on the show. Uh, yeah, you definitely don't want to miss it. it. It's if you watched tonight's episode, and if you're listening to this, God, I hope you watched tonight's episode. Because if not, go watch tonight's episode, then come back here, and then you're going to be like, oh my God, they're they're talking to Ashley later tonight. I'm so excited. What did you think of tonight's overall episode? So after two weeks of really world building, heavy mythology, Manx's past, and then Millie in Christmas Land. Tonight was really more of like a family, story-driven episode. What was your take on the shift in tone? As a fan of genre TV, there's always sort of the episode that comes along where everybody kind of needs a breather. Everybody kind of needs to regroup. So we start off with this character-driven episode, and, and which I totally got into. But I wasn't really expecting for it to suddenly turn very apeshit very fast near the end which was awesome but overall i think it, it was just a really strong character episode where the where the dialogue was really well written um exquisitely acted it felt like real people talking versus speaking their lines and so many people when they're looking at a horror show or something they want to skip by these moments of character drama but it's so critical for later payoff because you're not going to give a shit what happens to them later otherwise so i thought it was a really important time to sit down with with all of our people and kind of find out where they are move them forward to. I, I feel like I see every week, fill in the name here, gives Vic some real talk, some some tough talk about how she's living her life and how she is being as a mom and how she's being as a partner. And tonight was no different. And if to anything, tonight was even more harsh. I mean, the opening clip we heard before the beginning of tonight's episode, your kid told you you suck. That's got to be a low point. But I agree with you. You can't have just all of the action, action, action sequences. You need these grounded family moments, these grounded drama, scripted drama moments to make the action mean anything. 
and and also to give the supernatural grounding because again you're not going to care what happens there there's going to be no real stakes and you're not going to feel anything you know like in season one by the time Vic was trying to get out of that fire oh my god I was on the edge of my seat because I knew her and I cared so much about her because they spent the time to build her character and let you get to know her and that's just something I really appreciate as a fan. Anytime they're pulling Vic away now, and I totally get the need to go take Maggie and rescue Tabitha or go check in on her, and I, I support the decision. I'm on board with it. But it gives me such agita, like such such anxiety, because I know Manx is coming for Wayne. You're watching this episode unfold. You know he's in his head. It's coming. It, it has to be coming. And so getting her pulled away is... There's a part of me that's screaming, no, don't go. Do not go. You need to be there to protect your kid, no matter what else is happening outside the world. But then you stop and you're like, why do, why do I fucking care? It's a TV show. Well, I care because it's so well done. It's so well written and it's so well acted and executed that you care about these characters. I care about what happens to the McQueen family, to the to McCarmody family. I care about these guys. And that's why I'm feeling anxiety halfway through this episode. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I think I was yelling at my screen pretty much the last 10 minutes. And, you know, as as a fan of the books that the show is based on, both Nosferatu and Wraith, you know, you kind of you kind of have a little bit of an expectation for certain things to happen. What I was not expecting was yet another nod from the Wraith book at the end. I mean, at least not the one that we got. Oh, my God. So I can't wait till we get to that a little bit later. That's going to be fun. There were two favorite moments of the series in this episode for me. And the nod you're talking about led to one of those best moments in the series for me. And then there's another one that comes up that we'll talk about in a second. But for me, there were also some great nods to to Nosferatu, to the novel itself, and how the show is incorporating Tabitha Hutter, who is not a major character. She appears in Nosferatu. She appears a, a bunch in the back half of the book uh, during the Wayne Manx plot. But she's not a huge character. And so the fact that they have now upped... Ashley Romans to series regular, making Tabitha a, a part of this core cast, putting her with Maggie, putting her in the mix with things. It's interesting to see how they're using ideas from from the novel and, and working them in around Tabitha. And I thought that I thought tonight was the real first great example of them integrating her into the show in a really organic way. One hundred percent. It sort of subverted my entire expectation. And that's what I'm really digging about it. It's giving us fans of the book things that we would love to see, want to see. Plus, giving us new ways of looking at these characters that we hadn't really thought of before. And it's really, really elegantly done. When I talked to Jamie a couple of times last year doing the after show, the live reaction after shows um, over on Pop Culture Review, one of the things I always feel like we ended up talking about a bunch was how there are always people who complain about, well, you're not adapting the book exactly as it was written. And those people are always out there. Fans of a book are never across the board fully happy with an adaptation. But one thing that I always was struck by, and obviously I think Jimmy agrees, was this show has always captured the soul of Nosferatu, the novel, perfectly well. Maybe as well as any adaptation in, of a book into a show that I've ever seen. You gave me chills saying that. I mean, that's, that's how good it is. Well, I am a gifted orator, obviously, <laughs> but 
No, but I mean, but the work stands for itself, though. I mean, I don't, I don't think that that's blowing smoke up anyone's ass. I don't think that's hyperbole of, of any sort. This show is just, it just captures so perfectly the soul of Joe Hill's work. It's impossible to deny. It's like Thanos. It's inevitable. And it, it, you just have to respect that. And what they're doing with Tabitha and how they're bringing her in is so smart. And it's so in the same vein of that. And also just knowing what a huge fan of the book that Jamie is, uh, her love for the characters, you know that everything is just treated with respect and love. And it is, it, you, you feel that. They really care about this this show and these characters and this story. With that, without a reckless minute, let's get into the high points of the episode and, and break that down. Because uh, we have this interview to get to, and that's what people really want to hear, honestly. Hey, uh, Anna, we called it 100% on the nose. This candy cane is some kind of talisman tether to Charlie Manx. Were you surprised to see it come back into play this episode? Not at all, because we knew. We knew that he was going to get into his head, and the, the kid's carrying it around everywhere. So there, there you go. He's working on him, and he's showing him the Christmas land joy. And just showing up at the door like that, hysterical, loved him, his whole pitch. Wonderful. I mean, Zach Quinto is just, every episode so far this season is just showing all these different facets to Manx's personality and is just putting on a fucking masterclass that I, I feel like uh, almost everyone in this show deserves an Emmy nomination at, at some level from writing, directing, acting, but it'll be, it'll be a crime if Zach doesn't get some kind of Emmy nod for his work here as Manx. At the top of this episode, I said that there wasn't a lot of world building, lore, mythology deepening in this episode, especially coming off of the last two. And that's actually not really true, because there are a couple things in this episode that we've never seen before. We've never seen this two-way communication aspect uh, and this lucid dreaming that we saw tonight with Wayne and Manx where they're in kind of Christmas land in the dreams, but also being reflected in the real world, where he's moving through the house as if he was imagining Christmas land and the carolers. And we've never seen that before. We, we've seen hints of Christmas. We've, we've heard the Wraith play Christmas music and lore the children to the car like a siren's call. But correct me if I'm wrong, we've never seen this kind of, this kind of, I'm bringing the magic to you. It's like Disneyland. It's like Disney coming to your door. Yeah, it, it was pretty surprising. We've not seen that level of interaction with a kid and, and their subconscious and really seeing how Charlie's powers can be used. And, and it gave me, you know, a little bit as, you know, an old horror fan, a little bit of a Freddy Krueger vibe because you've got the whole sort of dream sleepwalking, you know, terror going on. And, you know, we find out that, yeah, they're, they can communicate that way. This was next level seduction. Normally, it, it's just a trail of candy canes, back door open, the suicide door open on the wraith with Christmas presents in the back, and that's enough to get the kids in here. Charlie knows that Wayne is not your average kid, though. He already bested him with the passwords test last week. So this is like next level. Come here, child. I mean, he, he he's bringing Christmas land to the fucking yard, guys. There are carolers singing Silent Night in their yard. Yeah, he, he's just carnival barker all the way, full tilt. And again, Quinto's just chewing up the scenery in this and having a blast. And I'm having a blast watching it. He's, he's really funny every time at this point. He knows what kids like. It's really creepy. 
and it's going to continue to work on him as as we kind of get into the episode. So as we head into the credits, there, I mean, two just two things for me that really stuck out. One, the panic on Vic's face. Imagine waking up and not being able to wake up your child. So we see him sleepwalking three times in this episode. This is the least unpleasant one, and it was making the hair stand on my arm when she couldn't wake him up. Imagine being Vic with all of her trauma, not being able to wake your kid up. I, I can't. I can't imagine that. And then two... Through the window, who did we see just as we went into the opening credits? Who was winking down on us from high above, who we had not seen in a while? That beautiful man in the moon. <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I love it. I squealed like a little kid going to Christmas land when I saw the man in the moon. I was like, oh my god, he's back! And it's actually, they use Zachary Quinto's face for the effects. So if you look closely, it really is him. It's his face. It's Charlie Banks. Yeah, I, it was less obvious in tonight's episode because it was kind of far away and, and it was a little obscured. But if you look back to the season one episodes with Bing, you really get the Zach Quinto, Charlie Minks vibe coming through the man in the moon, which is kind of awesome. I, I also like here how the last thing we hear Charlie say is, can you do me one small favor, Wayne? And we never hear what the favor is. Yeah, but we know. <laughs> we find out at least. When we come back from credits, we have Chris McQueen meeting Vic's family. We have uh, him meeting Lou and Wayne for the first time. What was your take on, on this on this meeting? It was a sweet moment, but you could definitely there was like the tension underneath because it's been eight years and this is the first time Chris is meeting his grandkid. It is a little odd that they've stayed away for so long. Everyone's got family issues. God, Lord knows, I, I don't talk to my parents uh, at all, maybe even more than eight years. But, you know, it's just weird to see it played on TV. You kind of said it before about subverting expectations. You don't really ever see that on TV. You don't really see kids estranged from their grandparents on TV. It's not super common. But for Vic, and again, and her trauma, and what the East represents to her, and everything she went through in season one, it kind of makes perfect sense that she wouldn't have been back here, that she wouldn't have subjected the way she sees it, subjecting Lou and Wayne to, to the parents of McQueen. At the same time, though, the, the show sort of demonstrates how she's also made her own family. I mean, they call Maggie Aunt, Aunt Maggie for Wayne. So it's almost like she's she's sort of formed her own family on the side, too, with the absence of being around you know, her parents and having that sort of environment with her kid. But it's it's a good scene to see that, that they do finally get to meet. I mean, I think Chris McQueen is really, I don't know if it came through, you know, clearly in our last episode, but I'm really impressed with where he is. I think it takes a lot to pick yourself up, move beyond your alcoholism to the point where you can say you have a dry house and actually enforce that rule. There was a great conversation with him and Vic where you never really stop being an alcoholic. You're just treating the disease. And I think they handled that actually really well. But I like this Christmas Queen. That's what I'm saying. I think this is a kinder, softer, has his shit more together, appreciates the things that are important more kind of Christmas Queen. Sadly, this is the kind of Chris McQueen, just kind of like Linda last week. Th these are the parents that Vic needed growing up. Unfortunately, she didn't have now until she's in her late 20s. I just think it's it's a neat thing to see. You don't usually get to see the loser alcoholic guy turn around in a show. That's an arc, uh, like you're saying, uh, with subverting expectations. You don't see the estranged grandkid. You also don't see the, the drunk guy cleaning himself up a lot. One thing this show does really well, which a lot of ensemble shows don't do well, is 
all of the characters have a good 3D dimension to them. Linda and Chris, they're series regulars, but they're certainly not core cast members insofar as if you remove them from the story, you'd still have the bulk of Nosferatu the way you understand the show. But at the same time, when they're on the screen, and especially so far this season, you really have a sense of who these people are. You have a sense of what their journey has been the last eight years that we haven't seen them where they were from last season to where they are now and the advice that they're doling out, the approach with Vic that they're taking. It's a really impressive development of character for these characters that are not central, central, central to the story. That's a hard thing to achieve. And Jamie and her team of writers, I think, have done a beautiful job of doing it. 100%. And it, it just feels like everything is for a reason. There's not a word that isn't considered and that doesn't have uh, an importance, either giving us insight into the, the person saying it or the person that they're talking to. So even through these conversations with their parents, we're learning more about Vic as well. And that, that just keeps everybody moving and keeps the whole story rolling. And again, lets us care about who these people are so that when crazy stuff does happen, like when we see Wayne has bought his candy cane with him, to the lake house, we care a little bit more and are gasping because he's seeing Christmas ornaments in the daytime. Seeing ornaments like the sleigh house ornaments materialize outside of Chris's lake house was one of the most disturbing things I've seen. I mean, Wayne is tapped into some dark dark energy here and it's really troubling. But Wayne doesn't have really a normal childhood to begin with. The candy cane aside, how many kids do you know have as a main concern keeping their story straight for the feds and their grandfather, where you have to lie about who's hunting to kill you. You know, like, no, no, it's not this person. It's not this person hunting to kill me. It's this other person hunting to kill me and my mom. That's not a normal thing most kids have to grow up with. So Wayne's dealing with all sorts of shit. Props to Wayne. Props to Wayne. That's 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 some heavy stuff. Not only, you know, who he's got to keep his story straight, how he keeps his story straight with different people. Yeah, that's a lot for a kid his age. No wonder he's seeing bats. For another another week, we have Lou sitting Vic down and giving her some real talk about the state of their relationship and the state of her as he sees it. And I think because he's so insanely in love with her, and feels so blessed to have her and Wayne in his life, I think you have to really take at full value what he says about her. Because when he is giving her objective advice, think how hard that is for him to be giving her. And so when he goes into the spiel about, I want to adopt Wayne, and, and he starts it off by kind of saying, I want to adopt Wayne formally in case something happens to you. But then as he keeps talking, it's kind of clear that he's saying, I want to formally adopt Wayne so I can take him away from you if you can't get your shit together. What was your impression on this whole conversation? I think that was a great moment because it shows you how much he loves Wayne and is willing to do the right thing to protect this kid who is his son at this point. I think that was a really, really ballsy move and important. It, again, it gives you insight into Lou and what an amazing guy that he is and how lucky Vic is to have him. I have that whole show clip here about her getting her shit together. I just want to play it right here just because I thought it was really good. I want to adopt Wayne. Like, officially. If something happens to you, if you disappear again, I could lose him. I can't lose my son. Yeah, of course. He needs you. <clears throat> he needs his mother, too. 
You need stability. In the past few days, you set the frickin' house on fire, disappeared in the middle of the night, and went on a suicide mission to try to take on Charlie Manx. I know. Yeah, do you? I get it. A lot of bad shit has happened. You're not the only one on Team McCarmody who's traumatized. You are the only one who uses it as an excuse to not deal with your problems. And to also not be, like, present. Look, I want this to work. But if you don't figure your stuff out, I don't know. It's really impressive how Lou is walking the fine line of giving her ultimatums and and laying it out for her, but not doing it in a way that's condescending or nasty or anything less than what she needs to hear. And you know how I know she knows she needs to hear it, Hedda? She didn't reply. She didn't go into a huff. She didn't say, you're not taking my kid. She just she just stared at him. I, I thought that was pretty telling insofar as that she didn't really have a reaction at all. He just called her out. I mean, it, it's basically she's she's getting a lot of wake-up calls in this episode. I mean, it, it kind of moves her in a lot of ways through these other characters. She, she has basically been using what's happened to her as an excuse to not be there for her son. And he's, he's, he wants to look out for this kid. And if, if Vic can't do it, he's going to. Lou's going to take, take charge. I think Lou is, is kind of hashtag goals that we, we should all be striving for in uh, being there as a partner and, and as a father. Let's move to Tabitha and Maggie. Because for me, this, this was a great conversation. We haven't really spent a lot of time with these two since the season began. But for me, it had all sorts of importance because of what Tabitha ends up doing later in the episode, which kind of goes against the grain of everything she warns Maggie against here. What was your take on her speech about there's a cost for everything, including having Vic back in your life? It just sort of mirrors everything else that's going on. Um, you've got these two, you know, somewhat normal people, Lou with Vic, Tabitha with Maggie. They're both struggling to protect these people that they love. And we don't realize it till later how much Tabitha's sort of not taking her own advice, basically. But she also knows that Maggie's having these crazy seizures and stuff every time she uses her powers. So she's probably a little bit more weary of the supernatural, the things that she doesn't understand. I, I picked up that vibe a little bit, too. I don't think Tabitha really appreciates how crazy in love with her Maggie is. You know, I think Tabitha really has a blind spot when it comes to Maggie and Vic. She could have benefited from hearing Maggie's speech to Vic about choosing love over choosing the tiles. That being said, that was kind of a bitchy thing, but also maybe true when Vic turns to Maggie and says, you you chose love, but you're still here with me, with your tiles. I don't know if that was the best friend advice or response. I don't think that she really needed to say that, did she? Not really, but in a way, it also... It's sort of the situation that they're both in. They're both straddling two worlds and they're both trying to balance, you know, choosing to love someone versus trying to be a hero, basically, and, and save people. And they're both sort of almost bonding over <laughs> the fact that they're not very good at it yet. I think Maggie, uh, you know, she's never flustered really by Vic and, and she isn't here either. Yeah, she has that great response of, you know, I never said it was easy. And damn, girl, have truer words ever been spoken about love and managing a relationship? One thing it's not is easy. 
Maggie is this real oracle supernatural aid. You know, if you look at like the Joseph Campbell monomyth or like the hero's journey wheel, uh, if Vic is the hero on the journey, Maggie is definitely her supernatural guide, her Obi-Wan, as it were, to kind of help her along the way. So it's really interesting that role that she plays. And she's just so unflappable by Vic, no matter what Vic does. We kind of need that character. It's it's a great sort of team up. It's a great pairing. The contrast between them, you know, Vic's sort of a little rough around the edges and, you know, Maggie's just this sort of blowing butterfly that <laughs> goes through the screen. So it's just great contrast to, to have them and their chemistry on screen like that. So just like Wayne doesn't have a normal childhood uh, where he has to worry about who's coming to kill me, Chris and Vic bond over bomb making and info. And as they're making their bombs around the kitchen table, which they're planning on burying along the driveway, we have another sleepwalking incident uh, with with Wayne. This one's so creepy. Can you imagine? I mean, maybe. He, he says something maybe even worse. But hearing your child say, sometimes mom doesn't like us. <sighs> and in that weird, dull tone... Possessed. Yes, possessed. That's the word. Thank you. Yes. Oh, oh, that was a good creepy hair on my arms stood up when he said that scene. Yes, very, very well played. We've spent a lot of time talking about uh, Miss Conforti and how well she is doing with Millie Manx this season. We really haven't praised Jason David and his acting. This kid is hanging with some heavyweights. All of his scenes are with adults, and he's really just holding his own. I think this is just an episode that he shines in. This one very realistic child who feels so scorned by his mother over and over again, but also playing the temptation of Charlie Banks, but then also playing side like this sleepwalking kid who is giving this believable performance of being in like an otherworldly kind of place. Really just blown away by his talent. I was going to say the same thing. This is really an episode where this little guy shines and blows me away. And he just is so natural and in each moment. And there's no feeling of him struggling or anything. He is just, he's Wayne. He's this kid. He's hes Vic's son. And that's really great casting and I think really hard to find sometimes with, with younger actors. But this guy, this guy's special. Definitely into his character and everything after this episode yeah he's so he's he's fully locked in on his performance and i'm locked in on watching him i i fully believe him the parts of lou that he shows and the parts of vic that he shows that make up his character and though and then the spin he puts on it it's such an honest portrayal of how a child reflects parts maybe not always the best parts but reflects parts of the parents and that you can see it's not just bullshit when people say, oh, I see, I see a lot of you in Little Jimmy. I hear this all the time with my son. I, people say to me, Thomas it acts like you, he looks like you, and I see it too. And when I see it, it really blows me away. And so I see in Wayne so many parts of Lou and so many parts of Vic, and that's all on Jason David making that all come to life. It really, really impressive. I, I give him, I give him big, 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 big props. And then we've got this this great family drama unfolding, but then we keep getting glimpses on the side of Detective Hutter. And she is on Bing's trail. And around this point, she finds his last workplace with the missing gas. So we know she's homing in on him. I give her a lot of credit at how well she, or how easily she tracked him down. It's funny because when season one ends... The last time, the last thing we see 
with her and Maggie is that they're going to be going and looking for Bing. And presumably that trail went cold because they, they obviously never found him. But she is really like a dog with a with a bone. You know, she's got a real scent. And she is what you hope all of our FBI agents are like. She she is determined, dogged, and she's smart. She she has the exact right bead that eight years later, it doesn't matter. This guy is going to be somewhere with the gas. He's going to be somewhere where he has access to. He's going to return to the places that are familiar to him because that's how predators like a Bing act. This season has been very tight. It's been very efficient. Not a lot of fat on the bone. Not a lot of unnecessary scenes in any way. So when they're showing us and they're taking the time to show us these Tabitha scenes, it's making me pay attention because I feel like the show is trying to signal that you need to be paying attention to her and her storyline and what she's doing. And it totally pays off by the end, you know, because something happens that you might not expect. Um, and so, yeah, it's important that they showed these steps and gave us these little in- inside moments. Yeah, and also that she's so by the book. She's clearing her investigation with her higher-ups. She Later on, she calls in backup. Uh, the 20 minutes is too fucking long for the kind of backup she's requesting. She's doing the legwork. She's going to the former employers or the suspected employers. She's not like a TV trope renegade FBI agent. I flout the law, but I get results. She's not like that at all. She's very by the book, which I think also helps frame and makes more important the way the uh, the end of the episode plays out for her, because I think she does something that maybe isn't so smart or by the book. Well, before we get to that exciting moment, we do still have to have a little bit of a heart-to-heart. This was an episode that featured a lot of heart-to-hearts with, with Vic. Elder than Tabitha, basically everyone sits her down at some point, talks to her about their feelings. She gets it with Lou, she gets it with Wayne later on. Now it's her turn to have a little heart-to-heart with Chris. What, what was your take on Chris's parental advice here, especially in light of Linda's advice uh, last week? I love this moment so much because they're sitting there and they're they're watching basically her family play and he really imparts this wisdom to her and really I think helps her realize that Lou doesn't have to be there with her and he is and he's there with her and he's there with Wayne and the wisdom is basically I could never decide whether I was going to stay or go with her mom so don't be him either stay and fight for Lou or go and let him go. And that is absolutely beautiful advice. And I just love how it was framed while Lou and Wayne are out playing in the water and they're watching them. It was just, it was a good moment of levity for the show, I thought. In a show that is short on happy moments, this was a breath of fresh air for sure. Watching her, there's actually, I watch it again. It's actually really funny. Uh, Ashley Cummings like really kind of charges down the dock. And like jumps and that kind of run and jump she does in a movie is like her cannonball into like a deep lake. Uh, Here she like runs, she jumps and then she like lands and it's like only up to her knee. It was really, really funny (laughs) how shallow it was like it almost caught her by surprise. She's like, oh, my legs are already on the ground. It made me laugh out loud. You know what I thought of when we were watching this scene? How rarely we get to see Vic McQueen smile. Yeah, we really don't. And I love the whole way it was shot, too, because you were in the water with them. 
and you were with them in that excitement and that that you, know, you felt that love in that moment that she chose to join her family yeah it, it was just a great great scene that you don't really get a lot of in this show with the sunshine and everybody giggling and splashing and you know everybody needs a little happy moment sometimes especially in the crazy stuff that's about to happen just going back to the chris and vic talk for a second only because it made my ears perk up a bit were you taken back that chris brought up craig he makes a point it's one of the first thing he says to compare wayne being tough like craig and I feel like it, it, it hit me across the face because I wasn't expecting to hear that name, but it almost like was a little bit of a whiplash across Vic's face. You know, she's the proximate cause of Craig's death, this biological father that Wayne will never know. And so it was kind of weird for me to hear that name. But at the same time, I thought Chris hasn't seen really these people since Craig was alive or just had died. Craig still kind of lives in Chris's memory pretty actively. Did that ring any bells for you or, or, or make you take notice at all? You know, I, I guess I sort of felt more like it was just another of those slaps in the face that Vix has sort of needed throughout, you know, the, the beginning of the season here to realize and, again, take responsibility and recognize her trauma and then try and stop using it as an excuse to be a shitty mom and a shitty partner. So we fast forward to that night and Vic has had this, this nice moment, this nice family time with Lou and Wayne and she approaches Lou, you know, she sends Wayne, interesting Wayne says, you know, tomorrow I want to go find friends to play with. You know, this idea of Christmas land is, is percolating in his head. The idea of having kids to play with is percolating around in his head. Vic turns to him like every mother would say and says, we're in hiding, honey. We can't go find kids to play with and kind of shoes him away. And I feel like maybe she's going to ultimately regret maybe shooing him away there in the immediate aftermath. But she tells Lou that she's ready to really try. She's ready to clean up her drinking. She really wants to be the woman and the mother and the partner that Lou and Wayne deserve. What was your impression of Lou's response to this this declaration that Vic makes? He's not completely sold. But then he's also, you kind of get this, he loves her and he's not quite sure whether to believe it or you know or is she really gonna try or is it just like words that he can just blow away in the wind that don't mean anything that she's not really gonna change i think he needs to see action i think he needs to see her really really make strides uh, stop the drinking and and be there be present yeah i mean he says to her i mean he adds two reallys he says you really really have to show me this time did I did I imagine this this time, or was it just implied? But the impl the implication is, it seems like Vic has made these kinds of promises before, but has never followed through with them. Obviously, has never followed through with them, and for the long term. And I give Lou a lot of credit. He's really holding on. He's not letting go. Ever since the house almost burned down, uh, back in Colorado, he really refuses to just let her off of the hook. He he seems like he has really moved beyond being this fanboy who can't believe he got to marry this hottie Vic McQueen to a guy who has really placed his priorities in the right order. You have problems and you are unsafe. You are unsafe for yourself. You are unsafe for me. And most of all, you are unsafe for our son, our son, Wayne. Uh, and he's really holding on to that and really holding her feet to the fire. And I like that. I really appreciate that. But also, it brings out a side of Lou that I don't like to see. I, I like Lou being happy and jolly and laughing. He's the one guy in the show that I want to always be kind of, 
he's Santa Claus, really, uh, in a lot of ways. And so watching him have, have to hold Vic's feet to the fire makes me kind of sad. He doesn't want to be that guy. He doesn't want to have to give her an ultimatum, but it's time. It really is. This is, again, this whole episode is like slap in the face for Vic. One after another, each person just coming by. This is your reality. This is your reality. This is your reality. And and it's needed. And she's not even done yet. She's not even done yet. She still has to suffer this horrible trauma again, realizing what her son's been through. And then she gets it from, from Wayne himself. He's not done kicking her teeth in a little bit, even though he's already said, you know, mom doesn't like us sometimes while he was sleepwalking. That's not even the worst of it, Anna. It's not the worst of it. So let's fast forward a little bit. We have Lou and Vic having a funny conversation about how dinky the detonator is for the explosives that they're burying. And they see Wayne walking down the dock. Dun, dun, dun. Take me through your feeling from the scene because then, then I want to talk about it too. It was really neat. It was really cool to see, you know, sort of Wayne and Charlie walking in Christmas land. And then you're just superimposing that with where he's actually walking down the docks. And I, for a moment, I thought Charlie was like trying to lead him off and, and kill him at that time, you know, somehow. So that's what it was sort of headed towards. And and they're having this whole conversation about his parents, how they suck. And he just wants, you know, kind of normal parents and, and have fun. And he's never had Christmas. I mean, my God, this is... This is some serious temptation going on here. Major, major, major level. Talk about building on the opening scene where Charlie brings Christmas land to his front yard right outside his door. Almost like a traditional vampire too, outside the door, like let me in kind of thing. You know, Charlie's at the threshold but can't doesn't come across as he's talking to Wayne in the opening with the kids right outside in the snow and we see Christmas land just outside the window. Here, we're there. He's actually in Christmas land and the the split screen effect of him walking with Charlie in the snow towards the gates of Christmas land that we saw him and Millie walking towards just, you know, an episode ago or two episodes ago, and then walking down the dock alone and then Vic, Vic trying to catch up with him, Vic almost taking the Charlie Minx spot. This is my favorite shot the show has done. The parallel side by side of Wayne literally having a foot in both of these worlds and watching him slowly amble down by with the man who's giving promising him everything and with the mother who has just kind of shafted him constantly in her efforts to keep him safe has not really taken good care of his mental well-being so fucking impressive so so good charlie's been doing this a long long time i think he's got his game on the kid gives up the location oh no no watching him (laughs) Watching him get, watching him think about it, and I totally believe he understands. He understands who this man is. He understands oh, how his mother, how his mother feels about this man, and yet still he contemplates it. You know, he didn't just blurt it out. Like kids will just blurt out stuff, and they don't really think about it. Wayne is not a normal kid. Wayne thinks about things. Wayne made a conscious decision to give Charlie Manx his location, and watching him say it with Christmas Land, and then say it on the dock, and and Vic not understand what he's saying. He, she's only getting, it's like when someone's on the phone and you're only hearing their responses and not the other person's responses. Oh, yeah. And you want to, like, leap into the screen, you know, so that Vic knows, like, oh, my God, he just told Manx. And, of course, then we see <laughs> Charlie sleeping in the wraith and he suddenly wakes up. And, and I just love that because it shows you that he was dreaming, too. So this was like a definite two-way dream communication going on real real freddy krueger stuff like you said 
But I think just the, just the effect, the idea of this two-way communication that Charlie, whose Christmas land lives in his imagination, can use his dreamscape, his lucid dreaming, like a walkie-talkie to reach children. Not something we've seen before, but totally seems believable within his power uh, set. But something that he probably doesn't have to use very often. I don't think kids are as... I don't think he has to work to get kids to Christmas land as, as hard as he's probably had to work to get Wayne. So this is really Charlie bringing out his A-game. It's really fun to see just him, him have to work for something a little bit, I guess. <laughs> you know, you get the feeling he's so used to getting what he wants. And, you know, these kids, whenever he has a target, he just runs and gets them and kidnaps them. And that's it. I don't think he's used to having to work this hard. But it's it's been really fun to watch so far and to see this expanded, you know, lore of, of his abilities and powers. And what about Vic's face when she finds the candy cane? In Wayne's hands. Yeah. Watching her start to put... She doesn't fully get it. And she won't fully get it until the end of the episode. But she's starting to put the pieces together that something, something bad has happened here. She doesn't know quite what, but there is him saying the location of where they are. There is a candy cane. There is this talking in his sleep. She's starting to put the pieces all together. And watching her face fall was really, really heartbreaking. But not as heartbreaking as when she wakes him up or when he wakes up in bed in just a little while and they have a conversation. But what did you think of this heart-to-heart? This is, this is the final slap across Vic's face for this episode. This is probably one of my favorite scenes in the whole episode. The chance for... Tell me why. Tell, tell, what, what, what resonated with you in this scene? The fact that they hadn't seemed to connect, really, and that, that she needed to know how much she had hurt him from his mouth. When, he, when Wayne literally tells his mom she sucks, her face, the expression, Ashley Cummings was so great. Jason David was so great. You can just really kind of see also Ashley's love of kids kind of shining through. That There was definitely a chemistry between them in this scene. And normally, you know, I don't know if I would be as into it. But I really was into it. It was just so real. And I really felt every every line. It was really real to me, too, because from what we have seen of their interaction, what we have seen of their time together, it's totally believable that this is what Wayne really thinks about his mother and has never said it. He's always the same way that Lou can't keep it inside anymore and needs to say out loud what he's been thinking and worrying about and fretting about Vic and what what pisses him off about Vic. Wayne is at the same breaking point. He has seen now this other temptation. You lied to me. Christmas isn't bad. Christmas is fucking rad. I just saw it. I got this sweet candy cane in my pocket. You've been selling me a bill of goods for eight years. What else have you been lying about? Man, you really do suck. You make dad unhappy, he says. You're just like this tornado of misery. He just lets it all out and then says he sucks, which is such a puerile word. It's such an immature word. But having a kid say that is is like a gunshot because... For a kid who doesn't have maybe the widest vocabulary, saying your mother sucks, that's that's like fighting words. Like, that shit you mean. It's powerful. Oh, it's a powerful word from a kid that age. Yeah, you don't say that in passing. You don't say, no. you don't say my close family member sucks, my dad sucks, my mom. Like, if you say that, you mean it. At that age, 100%. And she knew that, too. Again, you, you saw it on her face. And, and again, I, I love this moment because they get past it. She's able to impart to him she gets it, that she knows that she sucks, and they're able to bond again in this moment. So I think that was really important 
as well. It let you show that he does still love his mom and he's just been really angry because she has told him a bunch of bull. And we've been seeing this again mirrored with Manx and Millie where maybe Manx isn't telling Millie the truth all the time. So now she's sort of feeling a little little rebellious. And the same thing with Wayne. Well, he's going to do what mom doesn't want. He's going to go to Christmas land. It's not the last time this episode where we see a really nice parallel between Charlie and Vic, especially when it comes to their children. They are very similar in a lot, a lot of ways where they tell their kids a version of the truth in order to push their own agenda on what is important to them. You can't tell them only parts of the story that help sell your agenda, but not the full agenda, because that's always going to backfire on you. It, it does, because I don't think people give kids enough credit sometimes with how smart they are. And and they, they can see through you. You know, they know yeah. when you're bullshitting them because they have that natural, you know, they're not filtered. Especially a kid like Wayne, who is clearly more perceptive than your average kid. Just given his genetics, she has to, she has to think that he is more perceptive than your normal kid. He's going to be clued into more things than your normal kid. But also, given the life that he's led, given the things that he's had to deal with, the 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 running, the hiding, the fact that he could accept, I have to keep the story from the FBI and my grandfather, like, he swallows all that because it's kind of like how he's been trained. He's been this soldier in combat since he's a child. She doesn't give him enough credit to level with him, but I give Vic a lot of credit here because she doesn't escalate the situation. She winds it back and she takes responsibility for it. There's definitely a version of Vic that escalates this, that it does lead to all-out screaming. It does lead to ultimatums, like, don't you have any contact with Charlie Banks? You say, you know, some some kind of thing that a kid would be catnip for a kid to disobey. She could have done that, but she doesn't. When she winds it back, I think it gets the wheels turning in Wayne's head that he did make a mistake here. He's not ready to admit it to his mother yet, but he's starting to think after this conversation, maybe I fucked up here. Speaking of escalation, we should probably talk about what happens after this. This was kind of crazy. We've got Hutter. She sees Bing. She sees him getting, I guess, ready with the race. Floating up the happy gas. It's kind of crazy because you, you know what she's going to do. She's not going to wait for backup. Well, 20 minutes. Okay, Boston PD. Come on, guys. You have a FBI agent calling in that she is engaging a murder suspect. And you, you, you say 20 minutes? That's not acceptable. Come on, guys. We need to do better than that. No? You know, she's also been ignoring Maggie's calls at the same time. So it's sort of like a <laughs> both ways sort of thing. Like now she's got to wait, but Maggie doesn't know where she is. And oh, boy, we knew it. We knew it. Talk about the irony of her preaching to Maggie about the cost of using your tiles because of Vic. And then it's because of Tabitha that Maggie has to use her tiles. That, that's That's why I think the beginning conversation... Uh, where Tabitha, you know, gets up on her soapbox and preaches about the cost of getting back involved with Vic in your life is so rich to me because you're the one who eventually causes her to use her tiles and have a seizure. You kept her out of the loop. But what I love, too, about this show is when they, they do give you those glimpses of, of sort of the normal people seeing supernatural happen. So when Maggie's using her tiles, Lou's face just sort of lights up. I love that moment so much because he's just like, that's freaking wild, dude. <laughs> and it is every time you see it, every single time. But yeah, and then we, we basically, we find out that House of Sleep is exactly what Tabitha has found. It's interesting. Remember in season one, she gets the notes from the tiles, House of Sleep 2. And her and Tabitha scratch their heads from the tiles because they don't know what that means. 
and so she gets House of Sleep again. And so her tiles are like, all right, you didn't get House of Sleep too, so we'll just go back to House of Sleep. We gave you an answer eight, eight years ago, and you didn't like that answer. You didn't understand it. We're going to give you a variation of that and use your friend to go figure out what we mean when we say House of Sleep. The Lou thing was interesting. He was clearly blown away by the magic, as anyone would be. Anytime that arm goes digging in that Scrabble bag is is wild. But I think it's because he sees the tiles, he sees the magic work, he sees the tiles spell out House of Sleep, that they don't know where that is, that Vic has this gift that can find Tabitha, can find Bing. It's the seeing of it in action that makes Lou be okay with her leaving again to go chase, to go engage in her hero bullshit, as he called it, just last week. You know, you see this sort of stunning, stunned look to his face, but I think it helped uh, raise the stakes a little bit in his mind. Yeah, it made it real for him. Yeah, it's important, and, and this person needs help. And if my love can do something about it, then he gives his blessing for it. It's one thing to be over here or across the country talking to her on a cell phone, and I don't understand why you have to go get on your bridge to God knows where. God knows where! That that awesome power ballad from last week. It's one thing to not understand because you're removed from the situation, so you're only hearing Vic's words that sound like crazy people words. It's a whole other thing. It makes it so much more real when you see it in action. What is he supposed to say? What are they supposed to do? Vic has this gift and this ability. You're you're just gonna be like nah. But you're you know Tabitha has like, put FBI guard. She's like re- like stuck her neck out for your safety. You're just going to not support her doing this? No, of course, of course you're gonna say go do your thing. Go find go find Tabitha if you can. It just makes it more real. And I thought it was really important for Lou to see the voodoo, the magic in action. We also see at the same time what. Hutter is actually doing. We see her entering the house of sleep, uh, finding that, oh my God, creepy altar that Bing has built to Manx and it's all decked to the halls and she's going through there real slow with her gun. And I just got the biggest Clarice Starling vibes, you know, Silence of the Lambs vibes when she's going through there mm-hmm. by herself. That was just going through my mind. When she's going through Buffalo Bill, yeah, Buffalo Bill's house and she's finding all the different rooms. Really good analogy. You know, we're actually, we just launched another podcast on Pod Clubhouse called Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home with Beth Kushnick. And uh, Beth Kushnick is actually the set decorator on shows like Evil. Uh, she did The Good Wife. She did The Good Yay. Fight. Um, and so, so set decoration has been very much on my mind lately. Uh, and you can find that show on podclubhouse.com or on Apple Podcasts. Um, but I, so set decoration has been very much on my mind. And this scene, watching the altar with the Christmas lights across their wanted posters and the, and the news stories, it made me smile because it was so deranged, but it was also so well done. It was so, so well done. It made, it made me, made me smile really wide. Oh, it was just totally kind of crappy and, and half hung together, but it's exactly what you would expect Bing to have. And it just sort of upped the, uh, creep factor of the whole atmosphere of this church that she's in. And here, you know, is this altar to this, you know, 135 year old vampire, or however old he is. So you're seeing her kind of sneak around and then, Oh my god! What happens? Those who sneak around end up six feet underground. I love a good bingism, Anna. I love a good bingism. Oh man, and, and, oh, he just kind of tosses her around that room like a doll for a few minutes. I mean, it, it was harsh. She got some good licks in. I'll give her that. But bing. Yeah, I mean, she kept you know. coming at him. 
She Ooh. kept getting back up. She's she is Rocky against the Russian. She is Rocky against Ivan Drago. For sure. I felt every, every, every moment. I felt every little sound, every break, every yell, everything. It was just so well done. I loved, you know, how it was directed again and props to the stunt team for pulling that off because it was really, really intense and unexpected. It just did not stop. It, it was so visceral. He's so big. I mean, we talked about this last week when Bing and Lou, another big guy, squared off and it made you appreciate how large Bing is. He looked like he was playing with a rag doll, the way he was just throwing her around the room with no issue. The same way, like, Manx threw Nathan Demeter out of the trunk of the Wraith a couple episodes ago, was how Bing was flinging her around the room. But girlfriend kept getting up! I was like, yeah, girl, go! She took a crazy beating, took it completely, and then ends up subduing him. Has him, boom, gun to the head. She's got him. Or does she? You knew Manx had to be around. Well, we knew he had to be I around. wasn't expecting it, though. I really wasn't. I thought she kind of had Bing, at least in that moment. So then when Charlie steps around the corner, well, I mean, I probably, you know, shouldn't share that I needed to change my pants at that time. Oh, my God. When he, when he, <laughs> The way he comes around the corner. And you know Charlie Manx was listening to that fight. You know he could have intervened sooner, but didn't, because he loves to make an entrance. And he was like, now is a good time for me to, you know, walk on the stage, and I'm going to go Charlie makes it up. I mean, holy, he is just, he is just living his best life, Charlie makes. He really is, and having a blast. And when he, he comes at her with that hammer, and like, hammers mm. her in the shoulder, you know, yeah. what I, I said at the beginning of the episode, there were some nice callbacks to uh, Nosferatu. There's a whole there's a whole set of things in the book where Manx attacks Vic with a hammer and and Manx gets shot and then they have to relate the story to a very uh, skeptical Tabitha Hutter uh, who is a pretty minor character in the book um, and Tabitha is just like yeah y'all selling me some bullshit like does not is not really buying it at all it was so interesting watching the story unfold except for now it's Manx coming at Tabitha with a hammer and putting her on the ground and and Tabitha having this Tabitha knows Charlie Manx is dead. There's a whole scene in the book where Tabitha's like Charlie Manx is dead. He was you know he was cut up. He was autopsied. His his guts are hanging out. And Vic is like, "Yeah, you know, cool, 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 but I'm telling you Charlie Manx is alive." And so it, it's really interesting to see uh, the way Jamie and the team have put Manx in and Manx and Tabitha into this into this scene together for this showdown. Because it's it's a really smart way to bring Tabitha into a story that she's kind of connected to in the book, but make her a very central character in this incident. So really, really, really fun. Indeed, you really do care. And, and, you know, just again, it's a credit to the writers because we haven't been given a ton about her, but the parts that we've been given are, are, are rich and, and they're not fatty. So we get a really good sense of who she is. And I really did care. And this scene just moved so fast. Every little thing that happened, I was just sitting on the edge of my seat because, you know, it's like, boom, she gets bang. And then, boom, here's Charlie Manx with the hammer. And then, Boom! She shoots him in the head! Oh my god! It just does not stop. That was the thing that made me really jump and be like, oh my god, she did it! And then when he like just kind of flings back, and then we get to the cut, as she 
watching her limp away, I was expecting like, I don't know, Bing to break free and like grab at her or something. So it was me like, too, me too. Yeah. I, it was, it was one of those Ugh. things where every, every kind of crawling step she took towards the stairs, I was just waiting for, I was like, is Abe going to be here? I'm like someone else is going to come out and grab her. What else is going to happen? But then she gets away, which was its own shock. But all of that blood, Anna, seeping out of Charlie Binks' head. Yeah, but I think uh, race fans might know what's coming. We get a clip of the race starting its engine, and then we get Charlie back to life in one of the best moments, I think, in the show so far. In, in a, Completely. In, in a series where Zachary Quinto has given some great facial acting, great eye acting, some great, just really memorable Charlie Manxisms with his body and his and his movement. The shrug he gives and then the laugh as he pulls the as he stares at the bullet he has just pulled from his forehead or from the back of his head when entered his forehead. By far my favorite Manx expression of the entire show. I cannot wait to have that gif. I, that Someone has to gif that ASAP. And send it to I, me. I asked AMC already. I was like, in your media pack, I hope there's a bullet gif of Manx, but there wasn't yet, so we gotta make one. Yeah, I, I, I might have to open up the old gif maker and go make that, because... It's so beautiful and priceless. It really is. I gotta know, you know, I'm just curious, I wonder how many takes that took. I gotta find that out. I hope it was just one and it was just how we felt it. I mean, I'm sure there were like a bunch of different takes. Like, give us different expressions but that's such a clear winner i can't i don't care what else he did it, it, what other takes he did that is so dead on charlie banks it was so freaking great it's why i was it's, laughing it's so hard it's, yeah it's why it's hard to hate him you know i find it easy to not like bing i, I find it easy to dislike bing greatly i don't find his redeeming qualities very redeeming and charlie i don't think really has any redeeming qualities but i find him so charming he's charming i cannot help but like him a little bit and when he does shit like this i uh, you know getting a getting a fanboy boner for for zach winter for sure and 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 it's so fun because i just love how it plays with how you enjoy the villain and now now the heroine's kind of shitty person and they're they're just sort of twisting all of these characters together and they're almost not that much different after all in the way that you feel for them and appreciate these moments. I mean, it was so funny. It basically made me forget, like, you know, the end of the episode in a way. I was just laughing about it so hard. I had to go back and watch the very end again because I didn't even, like, pay attention to what was going on. <laughs> so, so so Maggie and Vic make it to uh, the House of Sleep. Not in time. I mean, uh, Tabitha has already gotten herself put on the stretcher, but we learn from her that Manx and, well, there's a nice reunion between Tabitha and Maggie, where Tabitha has the balls to say, you know, you were dumb to come out here. Girl, look what you just did. You were not smart. What are you talking about yelling at her for coming out here? But it was also the sweetest thing that she ever did. So, I mean, it, we needed them to kind of have that little little sweetness. We, we're, we're both idiots. We love each other kind of moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I, listen, I'm all in on Maggie and Tabitha. I love them together. I think they have such great chemistry, and I think they are good for each other. I think I think they bring a real uh, yin and yang to, to their relationship. So I, I really liked them together, and I'm happy that they had a reunion. But the, the, the pertinent part was that by the 20 minutes elapsed and the, the backup finally showed up, Manx and Bing have escaped. And Tabitha apologizes to Vic for letting them get away. 
which coincides with a fateful phone call from Lou. And what does Lou tell Vic? Lou tells Vic that Manx knows where they are and he knows the location of the lake house. And I mean, boom, Vic, you know, do not let him get in that car. I just, I was, I had chills at the end there. Very much so. I, they, they left you hanging so hard there at the end. Oh my God. The, the do not let him get in that car was great. But for me, the impactful thing was the thing she says right before that. Then this is the, this is how the show is so genius in paralleling Vic and Manx. She says, I'm coming. Don't let, do whatever, whatever you do. Don't let him get in that car. Uh, the I'm coming. This is exactly what Charlie says to Millie when Millie is telling him about Christmas land disappearing and, 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 Wonderful and, and, point. and Charlie and Charlie is having this freak out moment. Like this is his worst nightmare come true that this thing that he thought was eternal is falling apart. Vic is having that same kind of panic attack. The I'm coming is such a, is such a powerful thing. And I think it's not a coincidence that the two of them who have so many parallels, they really do. Uh, Vic and uh, Vic and Charlie, the the I'm coming. That's not an accidental line written there. That is not a very, all, yeah. a very intentional line, and I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was such a sign of great tie into earlier episodes and just a sign of great writing. And again, you know, just more of that mirroring that we keep finding and and talking about and how they're playing with this duality in this season. And and I mean, I even see it in the in the marketing materials, the color schemes. You know, you've got Vic with the with the fiery uh reds and and golds and then you've got Manx with the cold side, you know, the blues and the purples. And again, it's 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 complements, it's it opposites, it's this duality. And I I really get into that sort of symbolism in, in, in shows and, and being able to, to sort of dig into that and, and pick it out when, when it happens. Uh, I 100% agree, and I think the show does it better than maybe any other show that's on TV right now. So another great episode of just the pedal to the metal. Yeah, it really was a great one. Guys, that's all for our analysis of episode four, The Lake House. We're not even yet halfway through the season, but the intensity just keeps ramping up and ramping up, and I don't know, something's got to give because season two is just blowing away so far and i feel like the show has just reached this expert level of blending a deep family drama and high stakes tension and fantasy horror all together i'm just i'm so tickled i can't wait for more i I don't know i think my heart might be the thing that gives i don't know that i can keep watching these episodes without taking heart pills it's really just you know balls to the wall intensity the entire hour you're watching it well for us it's a little bit short because we're watching without commercials but still it's just super intense all the time and you just it's unpredictable. You really can't, even when you have an idea of what's coming, you really can't easily predict how it's going to happen. And I love that. I love not knowing. But even though we're done talking about episode four, please stay tuned because right now we have our wonderful chat with Tabitha Hutter herself, Miss Ashley Roman. Uh, stay tuned after our interview and we'll wrap up the episode. Joining us tonight on Strong Creators, welcome to the Nosferatu podcast. We are so excited to have her. We have Detecta Tabitha Hutter herself, Ashley Romans. Hey, Hi. Ashley. Hey. Ashley. Hey. How you doing? It's Agent Tabitha Hutter now. Oh, <laughs> you're right. That was Detective last season. Promotion. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. see, but that's what hard work pays off. Eight years. This is what you get, you know? Uh, let's start at the very beginning. Like, can you tell us about how you actually got the role? Like, what was the casting like for, for Tabitha? 
Oh, wow. It was really cool. So I went into Telsey and Co. that cast the show. I originally actually auditioned for Maggie. <laughs> Fun fact. And that wow. wasn't a good fit. Uh, but they called me back in again for Tabitha. Uh, the scene was so much fun that it was one of those auditions where I didn't really care whether or not I got the role because I had so much fun with the scene. It was the interrogation scene between me and Vic the first season. And then there was another scene between me and the parents. We ended up filming, but we cut actually. It was great because when I auditioned, the whole process took about less than a week. So I, I auditioned, I think, on a Monday or a Wednesday. There were negotiations, conversations back and forth. And then I flew out like Thursday of that week. And it all happened so fast. And I was also in the process of moving. So I had to move out of my apartment within the day and put my stuff in storage. Then I was off to Rhode Island reading the book on the plane. And it wasn't until I was reading the book on the plane where I realized, oh, this character, Tabitha Hutter, is actually a, a bigger character than I thought. And yeah, it was it was a great time. I love Rhode Island. What a treat. That is just a treasure chest of a state. <laughs> I never would have gone to Rhode Island on my own accord. And I'm so glad I did. And that's also kind of crazy thinking about you as like a uh, Maggie and, and not that you wouldn't have done great. It's just, you know, right. Jakara is just kind of the final role, but you really fit the bill of Tabitha so, so well in, right. in, in what the show has done, given you and, and how you've kind of brought it to life. You know, when you read the script, did you have any kind of spark, uh, you know, that, that drew you to the characters? Oh, well, I mean, just first seeing Jakara play Maggie and the way she brings it to life. Wow. She is such a gem of a artist. <laughs> I just love watching her. and She's so inspiring. The thing that makes me love their relationship so much is uh, how well they complement each other. Tabitha and Maggie. It's just kind of this light. Maggie really brings this light into Tabitha's world that she probably never really had <laughs> at that moment before that. And this magic too, literal magic. What really draws me into Tabitha is how she's kind of the anomaly in her profession. She is so dedicated to her profession and for the right reasons. And it makes her kind of unlike her peers. The way that she just pursues the truth and the value she puts on the truth as opposed to the results is really interesting. Before Nosferatu, you did stints on Shameless and I'm Dying Up Here. Mm -hmm. And those two shows are about as totally different from Nosferatu as can be. Mm -hmm. So are you ever drawn to a particular genre or is it just the role that matters the most and pulls you in? Yeah, I think it's the role. I The first thing I think of when I, when I have an audition is I think, what is my role in the storytelling? Why are we seeing this scene? Those are like the first questions I ask myself. Why are we seeing the scene? Why does this story have to be told? How does it relate to a bigger story in someone's life or my life? I think the writing kind of stands out on its own. It always will. When we're talking shameless and I'm dying up here, one of the things that really resonates with me the same way it resonates with Nosferatu is it kind of defies genres, right? Like shameless is a comedy and I'm dying up here was also a comedy, but there were these really dark moments and these moments where you weren't sure if you should laugh. And the thing about Nosferatu is that it defies so many genres. Sometimes it feels like you're in a procedural. Sometimes it feels like you're in a, a horror movie. And then sometimes it feels like you're in a weird fairy tale. 
it's just so cool, especially since it just kind of sits in that place of genre-less. That's actually a, a great point. We were talking earlier about how this episode was this great blend of like family drama, like really like fan, like serious family drama between Vic and, and her son Wayne and, and mm-hmm. Chris. But then also you have these like fantastic supernatural like action scenes that you're in in the back end of the episode. But they all, it doesn't seem like it should work, but it all kind of blends together so seamlessly. Right. Yeah. They do such a great job at that because that's how life is. And it kind of just it sits in that place of just, okay, so what is this moment? And, and we're changing and we're, we're kind of going on this ride and it takes you on that ride so seamlessly. It's it's great. Yeah. And this, um, sometimes it feels like a showdown, like a Western showdown, especially between Vic and the, the Wraith. For sure. When, yeah. When, when those when those lights flip on, you know the wraith cup is alive. Really, Ooh, it's uh, oh wow. yeah, it's super intense. The, it's, yeah, it feels like a western sometimes, and it's a, it feels you know like a shootout. And tonight's episode it felt like an action sequence, and it was really cool. Yeah, it it really mixes it up, and it must be fun too to work on a show that does that. You know, where you're able to kind of play around and do a lot of different things because like I remember when I was on the set that day and you I mean you were there like first thing in the morning till the very end of the day and you know you're doing different scenes you know in the morning more of an action thing and then in the evening more of a, a drama so you know it must be kind of interesting to be able to to sort of play around like that as, a, as an actress. Oh, totally, totally. Just the way that I see the set decorators, how sometimes it feels like a home and then in Vic's house or Virginia scenes and Eben scenes and then the lake house scenes, it, it has such a different vibe. And then you see Agent Tabitha Hutter at the FBI office and it feels cold and distant and it is completely different vibes on both sets. And it's so cool that it's the same show. Well, you seem to jump between between these moments effortlessly so we love seeing your portrayal ah, thank you appreciate of course. it so you mentioned that you were reading the book on the way up to rhode island do you approach your character work and developing your character differently when you're basing it on an existing character like coming out of a book versus a brand new character out of whole cloth is, is your process different or or do you still do the same work well it's the same work but the process definitely is informed more. When I auditioned, I only could take what I saw on the page. I didn't read the book before the audition. But reading the book afterwards definitely informed me as to who this person was and her role in the entire story. So, I mean, one thing that really resonated with me was that Tabitha Hutter didn't show up until like 600 pages into the book and when she shows up her description that joe hill gives her is that she's the guy right (laughs) like she's the one to go to she's the authority in this moment this is where she owns she plays her role and i i love that description so much and it was also too the another description was that when she stares at you it's almost like she's seeing through you oh yeah yeah and you got that You've got that down. You you are intense. Yeah, I love it. I, oh, you thank feel it, you. You. Feel, you feel it popping off the screen just like it does in a book. So thank you. That's that's one of the things that I really love. Since knowing that that is 
something inspired by Tabitha King, Joe Hill's mom. This idea that someone's mom could see through you. I already knew how he kind of felt about this character. And that informed how I felt about the character and how maybe she, uh, Tabitha ultimately feels about herself, what's important to her. So yeah, the book definitely informs my work, but my process doesn't really change. Except now I get to read a book and I don't have to make up a whole lot of other things myself. Oh, sure. That makes a lot of sense. You've got a nice groundwork there. But I guess I want to know, too, are there any other existing characters or or roles out there that you might have also mixed in with your portrayal of Hutter? Mm, That's a good question. Existing roles, like you mean stuff that other people have played or I've seen or... Yeah, something like that. Like, I know when I was watching this last episode, and I mentioned it in our in our discussion, like, I, I got really big sort of Clarice Starling, Silence of the Lambs vibes when ah. you're sort of going in like that. So I yeah. don't know if that was conscious or not, but it was That is cool. so funny because I did watch, <laughs> it was, it was that scene, I did watch that before I film this scene but just the that scene where Jodie Foster is going through and she's trying yes. to see and she can't see the monster yes. Yes. and her oh my God. that was I don't think I did that myself I think that also could have been part of production if they got that vibe but that's exactly what I was thinking too yeah we literally just got finished talking about that exact scene and that exact vibe yes it was a dead <laughs> it was a dead on feel is that, is that that hair on your arm standing up kind yeah. of yeah Ooh, impending doom oh that's so good one thing that i really love too is the camera movement specifically and i get to film with the cameraman the first scene uh the first season when tabitha rolls up on bing at the gas plant there was a whole camera shift kind of kind of dance that we did where i pull up and the cameraman kind of moves around me maneuvers around me and i pull up with the gun and the police brigade so this season it was really cool getting to do that dance again with this cameraman because i believe that it was all in one shot yeah really going through the house moving towards it towards that little shrine that was really cool yeah I love when when you have those long, continuous shots like that. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Super cool. Let's back up one second, because last season, I think you were in just a handful. You were in like three episodes. But tell us about the moment when you find out you're getting bumped to a series regular. Uh, what, what did that feel like? It was interesting because they did tell me that there was a possibility of me getting bumped to a series regular in season one. Especially having read the, after reading the book, I was like, oh, yeah, that that would that would be cool that would make sense but i still it wasn't real it was just one of those promises you you hear that to protect yourself you kind of keep away <laughs> it, it, like a real it's a real hollywood kind of statement ah darling we love you you're gonna be a big star big star you know like one of those <laughs> oh my god exactly <laughs> that was exactly right and it's like i've i've heard empty promises before and i don't really think anything of it you after a while too and being an actor in la you kind of learn to take everything with a grain of salt but then when i was actually bumped up it was it felt right it felt like oh yeah that makes sense because this feels like a family being on set working with these people cast and crew and i can honestly say i've worked in a few productions and without exception everyone is awesome without exception uh usually there's and some other projects i've worked on there's one or two exceptions 
but without exception, everyone from Zach to Ashley, Virginia, Eben. Uh, oh, I started naming people. Now I'm going to leave people out. I'm oh. sorry. <laughs> Matea, Jason, David, Jonathan, Jakara. Look at Ashley. Awesome. She got ready for her Emmy speech. She's like, I love you, mom. I'm so great when I forgot. They would have cut me off by now if this was my Emmy speech. <laughs> but yeah, it's really cool cast and crew. Well, that's actually interesting, though. So, so what is it like now? Then you show up season two. You, you're, you know, you're in the first episode. You, you are like in there from the beginning. Was it a different feeling? You know, flying back across the country, returning to set. What now being like kind of a regular being in there like from the get go? Did it have a different feel for you? No, it kind of felt like we just picked up where we left off. <laughs> Even though the show takes place eight years later it felt as though you ever, you ever have that i hope everyone in life gets to have that good friend where they haven't seen them in eight years and they just pick up right where they lost off it felt just like that speaking of coming back for season two a big reveal in the premiere was that tabitha and maggie are living in domestic bliss and we get that lovely dance movement i love that scene Not for did long, you know that because oh, vic, yeah, right. <laughs> vic comes in with her problems <laughs> Did you know, though, that the show was going to pair them up at all ahead of time? You know, if you read the book, and spoiler alert, can I do a spoiler alert? Go for it. Yeah, okay. people, yeah if people are listening now, then they've already listened to us t- talk about the episode for like an hour. Yeah, go spoiler Okay, <laughs> So in the book, Tabitha and Lou actually get paired up. And I had a feeling, yeah, I think I remember Jakara calling me at one point saying like, hey, we're going to be a thing, especially since all of our scenes are together. But what I love about this show is akin to... Um, you know, around Christmas time, you hear all these Christmas standards and then they take a Christmas standard and they might jazz it up mm-hmm, and like a jazz yep. band. It feels like we're taking the standard of the book and then we're just jazzing it up. So we're seeing all these scenes that you wouldn't necessarily see with people. Chris and Maggie, uh, Lou and Chris. Yeah, I love that we just kind of do our own riffs of this story. So yeah, I did know that we were going to get paired together, but I wasn't expecting to have this much fun with Jakara. She's my wife. <laughs> my One of my best friends. She's so funny. And she's such a great leader on set too. Her, Zach, Ashley, they're all great, great leaders. They set the tone. You guys are so different, though. The characters are are so different. And I think you touched on this a little bit before. Tell us more. What do you think makes them work so well, given that they are these kind of yin-yang kind of personalities? I think the thing that makes them work so well is that Tabitha Hutter has had uh, a moment in her life, one of the first moments in her life, where she was met with forces beyond her understanding. And I think she's been spending her whole life trying to understand those forces and trying to understand her purpose and her calling and why she was saved. And I would say meeting Maggie kind of answers a lot of the questions she always had about her life. I think Tabitha also offers the stability that Maggie wants and is looking for, the family that Maggie is looking for. She kind of had that with Joe Bly, but I think these are two wonderful women that want family. They want stability. They want to do the right thing and serve their world. And they kind of found partners in each other. I feel also that one of the reasons Tabitha goes into that house and kind of loses her cool, because that's what we really saw this episode. We saw Tabitha do too much. And <laughs> I don't I mean, want to no, no, you can't. We, you know, we're talking about that. I mean, she does exactly kind of what she warns Maggie not to do. Exactly. Do you think that she's always had that impulsive streak in her? Or is that from being, you know, with Maggie and having that influence in her life where she, you know, does sort of go off at the end on her own? 
Yeah, I I wouldn't say that Maggie brought out that impulsive streak, but I think that I think love in general just brought out that impulsive streak. Uh, she has a Ooh, lot of love for Maggie. Answer. Yeah, yeah, and uh, thank you. And I think when we are in love, we do stuff that isn't logical and isn't smart, isn't safe. I think also too what Tabitha has to learn this season is that her muscle isn't going to do it. And she's used to working for a bureaucracy and working for law enforcement. And it's all about results. It's about clearance rates. It's about muscle. It's about your gun and your badge. Now she kind of needs to humble herself even more this season and realize that this isn't her fight. And it, I mean, it is her fight and she can help, but she just needs to support the actual soldiers and i think too there might be a little bit of i don't want to say i guess for lack of i don't want to say jealousy but a sense of competition right as much as tabitha and maggie are in love maggie and vic are sisters in arms they're sister soldiers and that is such a strong bond that Tabitha can't really compete with because she doesn't have she doesn't know what it is to be a strong creative and the responsibility that comes with that. There's a part of this world that Tabitha is seeing and sees in this episode. I mean, she sees Manx alive, you know, this, there's this whole conversation in the book where Tabitha is like, Manx is dead. He, he was ripped open for an autopsy. You're crazy. And, you know, there's this real non-believer side to her. And Lou, I think on the Vic side of things, you know, has heard the stories, but hasn't really lived through it. Right, and, right. And the, and the both of them are getting the side of what Vic and Maggie have lived with for almost a decade at this point now. Right, and, right. And, yeah, and I think it's kind of like a changing the world thing for them. Oh, yeah, that was a huge game changer when Tabitha was just chasing Bing. It was annoying that Bing got away because Bing doesn't seem that smart. And it's how is it, how is Bing getting away the only, the only criminal able to elude Tabitha her entire career well because he has charlie banks on on his side and he she didn't realize that until this episode when she actually sees him alive which is a huge game changer that's the moment she realizes this is way way above my pay grade like <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah at that point i bet mm-hmm. for sure <laughs> played it well let's actually get into that because i mean that was the linchpin i think of, of this episode was this confrontation between tabitha and and bing and, and then banks if you can take us to the day of like filming that set like how much of that is you in that scene and those fight scenes how much the stunt doubles it, it, you know anything mm-hmm. you can kind of remember because it's intense it i mean you're getting your butt whooped but you keep getting up i mean you keep getting your licks in but you were <laughs> yeah. you I was wincing. I was wincing at the television screen. I was like, oh, ooh. yeah, I was feeling every, 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 <laughs> you know, toss and every punch and every kick. It was, it was brutal. I'm and glad. Intense. Yeah, it was brutal on set. I feared for I my bet. life. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, yeah. Dari, who plays Bing, he is such a great scene partner to have. I love every chance I get to act with him. But specifically in that scene. I felt so taken care of. So we do the entire fight sequence. We learn it on the day. And then uh, we film the fight sequence. I would like to give her an actual shout out. My stunt woman, Molly Ross, Molly Stunts. She filmed that one scene and then I filmed that one scene. And I think the only thing we used her, we really needed her for was the part with the throw into the boxes. And then the rest, they just used my footage. But yeah, it was really great. I felt everything was really safe. Dari does a really great job of like acting effort, but not actually throwing me. (laughs) Yeah, it was a good time. Awesome. I love it. Very awesome stunts work in that scene. 
very, very good. And then, you know, you, you get really banged up too, and but you're not out of the fight. Do you think we can expect to see more of Tabitha get back into the thick of the fight? Oh, for sure. Kind of heat up? Okay, cool. Oh, for sure. No, she's definitely not out. She's, she's pressed but not crushed. Uh, <laughs> I think what we're going to see is she needs to learn how to fight differently. She can't go into church basements trying to take down the bad guy herself because the muscle just doesn't work when you're talking about forces like these. She's becoming a more supportive soldier. There's been this tension between Tabitha and Vic. Not that Vic has necessarily seen it, but just hearing Tabitha mm-hmm. talk to Maggie about Vic in, in the premiere, she talks about the, the you know how, how she's bad for Maggie's health. And in, in this episode, before you go off and get all reckless on yourself, you warn her about the cost of things and, and the cost of having Vic back in your life. Is, is this a tension that's going to continue? Or now having gone through a Manx encounter, can we expect to see Tabitha maybe soften towards Vic a little bit? I think, well, yeah, I think we could see, it's going to be both. It's going to be both. I think the simple fact that Vic is back means that Maggie's in danger. I think it's also Maggie and her scrabble bag are akin to an addict and their drug of choice. Tabitha has been putting in the work to, I guess, quote unquote, get Maggie clean. And she's been supporting her through that. And now all of the trouble with Charlie Manx and Vic and, and Wayne, it's really bringing up uh, old feelings. Sure, like they could be triggers. Yeah, triggers. Yeah, triggers. Yeah. Uh, that's a great term for it. Yeah. So I think one of the reasons, too, that Tabitha does go into the church or does go out to find Bing is because the more that Tabitha deals with it, the less Maggie has to. And it's important. That's important because... Maggie could die every time she uses her powers, and it's it's way too big of a cost for her. I, I love the sign of love, though, that it, it turns out the end, and a little bit of the irony, that after Tabitha gives Maggie the warning about using the tiles and the cost, it's because of Tabitha and, and you know, ignoring her calls that mm-hmm. she ends up using the tiles and puts herself into that jeopardy, which is, you know, reckless on both their parts, but also sure. it, all, all driven by love. And, and I, I love... I'm using the word love a lot. I I really like how the show is giving this really three-dimensional view of their relationship with with not Mm -hmm. a lot of scenes, but we're really feeling it come across. Mm, Yeah, I I would say that's a great point, too. There aren't a lot of scenes, but I think we see more more of their love in the scenes when they're not together and how often they think about each other. And that's really the true depiction of love, right? How often do you think about someone when they're not in the room? And what do you do for them when they're not in the room? And that's what I, that's what I love. Oh, I'm using the word love a lot too. It's a love kind of day, I guess. <laughs> we love it. Yeah, we love it. We love it. We love it. We love LA. We love everything. We're, we're, we're I heard somewhere that Americans use love way too much, actually. There's another word in other languages that you could say you're fond of something, but it's not love. One of those things where you use it so much, you know, it starts to sound funny or it almost loses its meaning. But that being said, we do love it and we love you guys <laughs> together. So, Yeah, because as we're talking about words, um, without giving us any spoilers, of course, can you give us three words to describe the rest of the season hmm. from episode four on? Hmm. <laughs> episode four on, I would say explosive. <laughs> I would say cathartic. I would say... Explosive, cathartic, and actually, I think two words will do it. <laughs> two words, yeah. All right. I'm all about that. Two words, yeah. Keep us on our toes. Yeah, explosive and cathartic. 
Now, now we're going to get into the, the the silly parts of the interview. Thinking back on your time now, uh, what's been your favorite experience on set? Favorite experience or memory? Thinking back, my favorite experience on set. <laughs> okay, so this one scene is when Ashley comes in, or Vic comes back into the house, into Maggie and Tabitha's house, and it's her family, Lou and, wait, Bruce Wayne. I don't know why the character names are so hard to come by. I just wanted to, like, use uh, Jonathan, Jason, David. Jonathan and Jason are just sitting there chilling, you know. Right. But that scene in particular was really fun to film that day because it was – every scene with Jason, David, he is just such a ball of energy. And he is such a wonderful, smart kid. And it was just us joking around while Vic comes in. And that was a fun scene. In particular, I remember. And then there was another time where Ashley Cummings, fun fact, huge fan of Elton John. She adopted a dog during set, uh, during shooting and named him Elton. Anyhow, one day, Jonathan plays Lou, Ashley, some uh, of Ashley's stunt people, Zach Rips, who does contacts. We just went to Elton John. We drove like three hours to new york or long island and went to an elton john concert one of his uh farewell tours <laughs> that was a good time <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome i can imagine and yeah that sounds like it had to have been a blast big fan oh, too so, so much fun. a little jealous of that yeah i've never seen elton john live in concert i've always been a fan of his music never saw him live in concert though it was so cool yeah so i think that was the last concert i went to ever might, we might not have concerts for a while, especially after the pandemic. Yeah, great memory. It's all virtual now. So mm-hmm. we've got Hamilton on Disney Plus. We've reached the pinnacle. I don't know <laughs> that we have anything else going on. So Hamilton, I haven't seen it yet. I've oh my god, to. girl! I'll give you. I'll I'll give you my Disney Plus uh, account information. You go. I will Hamilton. hold you to that. <laughs> oh, I will. I, I will. I will text you as soon as we are done here, and I will give it to you, and you go watch Hamilton right away. Oh my god! Thank you so much. I've been, <laughs> I will log out. I promise. Uh, hopefully, hopefully Disney doesn't come and find us and sue us after this because here's it definitely gonna edit this out but yeah but no but for sure i will definitely do that as soon as we're done <laughs> oh my god oh, oh i okay here's here's one here's here's one just 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 for me about the set choose one bananagrams or scrabble Ooh, uh scrabble <laughs> i've never played bananagrams before but i think it's scrabble all right. Well, this is basically the one question that we ask everybody who comes on the Strong Creatives Welcome podcast, and that is, what would your inscape be, and what would your knife be if you had one? Mm, okay. So my knife would be guacamole. I'm glad I thought about this before, and I'm going nice. to stand by this answer. <laughs> All right. I don't know where we're going after a guacamole is a knife, but take me there. Let's go. I'm ready. <laughs> My knife. So I would just dip some chips in guacamole and take a bite. And my power would be to be able to read people's minds. Oh, my God. Which is awesome. really invasive, but <laughs> I don't know. And it's probably going to do – it's gonna, probably going to be crap for my anxiety. Like, <laughs> imagine anxiety is basically – 
what if that person doesn't like me? What are they thinking about me right now? And I would just never be my own business, and I'll just be thinking about other what other people are thinking. But y'all, uh, if you ever find yourself <laughs> out in a restaurant and you see Ashley getting tableside guac being made, run because she is gonna <laughs> yeah, be she there. is gonna be peeking in your brain. Yeah, I was you know, like, what did those guys order over there? Let me think about what they're thinking about. <laughs> Just never in my own business, but that's the best. That's the most useful thing I think I could be able to do. Read people's minds. I actually was just talking to someone yesterday about the fact that I love knowing everyone else's business, but I never <laughs> ever tell. I never tell anyone my own business. So right. it's it's like it's like a roach motel. Like the information comes in, but it doesn't come out. You know, like Say. <laughs> a roach motel. I love it. Oh God! Right. And then Ashley, we're best friends now. I don't know if you realize it, but we're best friends though. If you give me your Disney Plus, we will absolutely be best friends. Girl, I will. I will. Be- that's what I do with my family. That's why I'm gonna tell Disney too. Be like, Ashley's my cousin. <laughs> yes, we're cousins. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. So, so we actually hadn't planned on this one, but I, I want to ask you if you had the chance to go to Christmas Land, what would it take to get you in the race? Oh, that's great. I love that one. Like, it reminds me of Pennywise in the sewer. Like, what would it take for yeah. to get Pennywise? Let's see. What would it take to get me in the wraith? Yeah. Do you just see presents and you're like, shit, presents. I'm jumping in the car. Is it just Christmas carols? Uh, I guess universal health care. <laughs> it's just, it's just a, like a Cadillac insurance plan paperwork sitting in the backseat of the race for everybody not just for me obviously but like if Charlie Banks said hey come in the race then I'll promise that I'll give everyone universal health care and I think he could actually do it I would I would do it yeah, but maybe not dental care but maybe everything else Charlie I don't I don't think Charlie does so good with the dental care but <laughs> No, no, he's definitely not. He's got his own plan on that. <laughs> that's that's a good point. <laughs> oh, my God. Ashley, this has been so much fun. Thank you for hanging out with us. Uh, we went way over the time that we were supposed to talk to you. So thank you oh, for so okay. much. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. Thank you so very much. Definitely, definitely. I hope we can talk to you again sometime. I'd love it. Yeah, please. All right, guys, that does it for another episode of Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast. I just want to thank you for listening and tuning in every week. And you guys have helped make this one of the most listened to podcasts in the country. Yay! Thank you! (laughs) Yeah, even after just a few weeks on the air, we've jumped into one of the top uh, TV review podcasts. And that's because you guys, and thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to our great interviews. Thank you for loving Nosferatu the way that we love it and uh, tuning in every week. Thank you again, guys, for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe to Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Make sure to give us five stars, lots of five stars, five, five, five. Thank you again. We'll check you out next week. Uh, yeah, next week, definitely uh, tune back into this. We'll have another great interview with us, and we'll be talking about episode five, Bruce Wayne McQueen. Hey, Anna, should we give them the synopsis? I don't think it's actually been released yet, as at least when we're recording this episode of the synopsis for episode five. Nah, make a wait. Oh, she's such a meanie. All right, if you guys DM me, I'll tell you what these synopsis <laughs> episode. But by the time this drops, they probably would have already had a trailer for next week's episode. Meh, 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 meh. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. 
Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast, is an original production of Pod Clubhouse. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com.